Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for the first time in the month of July. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's so glad to be back with you once again here, as I said, in the start, in the first episode for the month of July. Yes, we were off last week to observe the Canada Day long weekend because that's long weekend we had where we live in Canada. We know many of you out there also were observing the 4th of July weekend in America land. Hope you enjoyed that as well and did not blow off any sort of appendage through a fireworks mishap. We thankfully can all still count to 10 on our hands, 20 with our toes, and hope you can as well. Absolutely. And I'm the other voice on this program as always. This week I'm Dennis, the man who still thinks the sun wants to kill him and only him. <laughs> It feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there, there's no general, there's no like real specific story surrounding it this time. You know, I didn't get a crazy sunburn or anything, but you know, it seems, well, especially where we're at again in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Canada, we, uh, it's been kind of a crazy drought season right now. And basically anytime I go outside, it feels like, you know, leaving the house, now granted we have air conditioning in the house and everything, so it's fine, but like, Anytime I leave the house, it literally feels like I'm walking into a sauna. <laughs> Not a sauna, but like it's very hot, very warm. You just get that oven, I guess, would be a better <laughs> way to put it. It feels like walking into an oven. Oven again, or like a hot shower or just the bathroom after someone had a really hot shower. Yeah, but... It's not really super humid though, which is why I'm kind of hesitant to say that because yeah, again, it's like super hot, super brutal outside. And normally in past times, you know, whenever it's been this hot and this brutal for this long, there's usually, you know, correction periods like overnight where there might be a rain happening overnight just to kind of, you know, correct for how hot it was. But there's literally been like no rain for the last like month. Months so and change. We might be going on month and a half at this point. Yeah. So, you know, like, like today it was last I checked, it was 34 degrees Celsius outside, which is in case you're not aware, very, very hot. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't, yeah. Okay. Talking about the weather, like, you know, lame, <laughs> lame icebreaker conversation 101, but good God, it's been like that for like <laughs> a long time and. It's not okay. I like going on walks and stuff, but I don't like going on walks in this weather. It's awful. No, there's nothing pleasant about it when you are instantly turned into just a, a dripping puddle of sweat and grossness. Trying to do anything outside in this weather just turns you into a dripping pile of sweaty grossness, and it's not pleasant. It's uncomfortable. Um, you know, any moment you're outside... Basically feels like a uh, game of trying to uh, play hide-and-seek with the sun, where you hide in the shade and then seek more shade. Yeah, and uh, for our American listeners, I just did the quick conversion, and that is 93.2 degrees Fahrenheit outside. So It's up there. It's up there. It's way up there, yeah. It's, um, uh, that, that's a respectable temperature. That's, uh, that's a temperature you can uh, cook, bake a cake to in your car. <laughs> yes. Yes, it can. Yes, it is. And yes, you can. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's not, it's not fun. It's, uh, I think this is one of the, uh, longer, uh, periods of just, uh, above average temperatures that I can recall without any sort of abatement or, as you put it, a correction with, uh, rainfall in between. 
Yeah. Though, amazingly enough, we did plant a tomato plant and a pumpkin in the backyard, and both are doing amazingly well for some reason, with very little input from us. (laughs) I haven't really been watering it either, and they're growing strong, apparently, so I guess the trick is neglect? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, that's the old farmer's secret for for growing crops, isn't it? Neglect them. Neglect them, you know. Forget about him, and then, you know, eventually, you'll reap the benefits. <laughs> you see, you don't want any sort of sissy, namby-pamby, you know, uh, baby, you know, vegetables or whatnot. No, no, you want them to grow up strong and hardy and tough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I do recall the uh, the pumpkin you managed to grow last summer, which was ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> it was like, you know, a decent-sized pumpkin, a big pumpkin, as it were. It was a big pumpkin. It uh, kind of made me wonder and question what exactly you were feeding it over there. And the first thought that came to my mind of what you could potentially be feeding it to make it grow that big was meat. <laughs> yes. So it's basically a, uh, you know, a uh, like an Audrey 2 situation from uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Exactly. But uh, instead of uh, some sort of uh, Venus flytrap type uh, plant, it's a pumpkin. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, glad you finally got rid of it, uh, to, uh, you know, quell the threat, uh, of harm coming to, to you and your girlfriend in the house. But, uh, you know, that just means it's a new summer, new, uh, killer pumpkin. Yeah. Exactly. With its cohort and partner in crime, Tomato. Yeah. It's, uh, you know. Well, we'll see which one survives. They're both in the same planter box, so. <laughs> There's only uh, so many nutrients to go around there, so, uh. <laughs> A survival of the fittest situation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're going to plant these crops in whichever one survives, we'll eat it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I assume that's what all of farming is in general. I mean, not being a farmer myself, I can't say one way or the other, but uh, I'll just say yes, just for the heck of it. Excellent. That That is the only appropriate uh, uh, remark and only appropriate uh, uh, answer. But, uh, you know, we laugh and joke about uh, growing crops and how ridiculous they can grow. I mean, if you've got a green thumb, then uh, good on you. Certainly uh, more than I possess. I also don't have any interest in plant gardening or vegetable gardening. Good on you for the people who do. But, uh, you know, there are some ridiculous uh, uh, sized vegetables that can be grown. If you've ever seen, uh, some of the world record setting pumpkins that are grown, I believe in the United States, those are just ridiculous. And, uh, to the points of, yeah, the, of lunacy. The, the, the things that win the county fair, like competitions and stuff, like you see, you always see the pumpkins that are like six feet tall and you look at it and you're like, how did you do that? How much miracle grow did you buy? <laughs> like, like, no, granted, like, you know, we we only did this just, you know, out of sheer morbid curiosity. This is definitely not our main way of getting vegetables. Like, I, I don't I don't think that it's a super sustainable way of, you know, getting vegetables for yourself in this, the year of our Lord 2021. It's, you know, I'd very much just prefer to go to the grocery store whenever I need vegetables and they'll be fresh and they'll be exactly what I want. As opposed to, you know, I might have carrots this year. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> it's just, 
<laughs> no matter what you grow, it's going to be way more expensive than just buying them in the store. And way more time and effort and everything. And they're not going to be as good, probably. I mean, <laughs> unless you're one of those people that, you know, actually taste the satisfaction you get out of, you know, doing something for yourself, which fine. If that's what you want to tell yourself, great. I'm not going to kid myself, though. The, the carrots I could buy in the store, for example, are just way better than anything I could grow at home. They're going to be and- bigger. They're, uh, you know, going to be somewhat well, I can't really say fresher if you can literally go rip it out of your garden, but they're certainly going to be bigger, more hearty, more substantive, and right there, easier. Yeah. And, you know, I had them as soon as I thought about them. <laughs> I didn't have to wait a whole season to have them. It's like, oh, carrots would be good. Well, I guess in three months we'll see how they turn out. <laughs> like, really? Okay. All right. Well, okay. I guess I'll hold off on any salad plans then. <laughs> Oh, I'm so hungry. Yeah. <laughs> and also, too, you don't really run into the problem of, oh, these, you know, of the five, you know, uh, crops I planted or five vegetables, different vegetable plants I planted, you know, four didn't come in. But, man, the potatoes really came in. So uh it's potatoes for the rest of the year, kids. Yeah. Like, well, great. Hope you like fries and mashed potatoes and wedges and... All the different things you can make with potatoes and, I mean, I, I say that like disparagingly. No, those are all fine. Like there's nothing wrong with potatoes, but you can't sustain yourself on potatoes alone. I mean, <laughs> if you look at the potato famine, like that was kind of the problem there, right? So yeah. Anyways, um, yeah. So yes, uh, uh, basically what uh, we here at the arcade are advocating for is, uh, sure, you can grow your own vegetables as a little hobby, but, uh, just recognize you're still going to have to go to the store. Yeah, probably. Like, un- unless, of course, you have, like, an acreage or something and you can just build, like, a gigantic, ridiculous garden for yourself. It's kind of otherwise going to be maybe a little bit cost prohibitive to, like, you know, overturn your whole backyard or something or just even your front yard. There's someone in our neighborhood that I noticed basically turned their front yard into, like, you know, a big potato patch, which, you know, I'm sure their neighbors are not super happy about, but, in, you know, when I look at that, I kind of think, I'm like, that's actually not the worst. You know, I'm not going to get into my whole opinion on, you know, grass being a huge wasteful thing anyways, but that's that's a discussion for another day, perhaps another podcast. We'll, <laughs> we'll uh, I think I'll just leave it there, but yeah. Um, yeah. But yes, Support your uh, local greengrocer, though. I mean, if you, if you, if you can, if you have like a, a you know, lo- local farmer's markets and things like that, Try to go there at the very least, like, because I find farmer's markets, like, you'll, you might pay a little bit more, but the quality is going to be better. And you know it's actually supporting a local farmer, so that's cool. You're not just buying, you know, your prepackaged whatever from your Walmart or whatever else like that. Uh, true enough. And uh, at the same time, too, vegetables, uh, largely the same as they've been for years and years, although increasingly we're seeing more and more companies get into uh, new ways to try and innovate in the, I guess, vegetable and agricultural, agricultural and farming space. And uh, a lot of that is go- uh, coming by an infusion of uh, tech and tech companies uh, or new company, new tech companies springing up to uh, bring uh, a bit more of a tech focused approach to the old 
fields, farming methods, and uh, tech. Tech is a hell of a world that can be f- uh, filled with so many good ideas, and yet so many other ideas that just make you scratch your head and leave you saying, huh? Yeah. Which leads us into our first of two ludicrous lead-offs this week, and uh, we have one of those tech-based news items that uh, we came across that uh, certainly will leave you saying, huh? What the hell? Why? And uh, also, in in my opinion, kind of makes me wonder why some people who've had success in the tech world still get listened to, even if their ideas are kind of on the crazy side. Yeah. So I guess before we talk about that, on that note, previous success should not always indicate future results. That should be just basically a disclaimer that is basically listed on everything in every context. Like, you know, it's usually only listed that I've seen for lawyers and stuff in like American lawsuit ads and stuff where it's just like, yo, we win a whole bunch of cases. It's like, note previous results do not guarantee future success. If you, if you're trying to sue someone just because you get a successful lawyer, if your case is garbage, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to win, et cetera, et cetera. Things in that vein. So sure. I can see like, you know, wanting to listen to someone who's had previous success, perhaps let basically hear out their elevator pitch. But you know, you should still basically judge for yourself if you think the idea is trash or not, because, you know, an idea might come along that sounds like trash. And, you know, just because it's coming from a, you know, person who has had previous success shouldn't mean that you should basically just immediately follow them and go against your own instincts. At least I'm, I'm really hoping it's against your own instincts in this case, because yeah. Um, Anyways, uh, without, without, you know, dancing around this issue too much, we're going to talk about a thing called WorldCoin, which is a new cryptocurrency, um, well, put up or thought up and or, you know, put together by a startup headed up by Sam Altman, who is the former CEO of, uh, the startup incubator Y Combinator, uh, which, you know, on the surface, before you read too far into it, has maybe a little bit of a noble intention. Um, you know, right now, one of the major issues in the world is kind of like huge income disparity. And, you know, there's very rich people. Like, in, even in first world countries, there's very rich people and very poor people. The very poor people basically struggling to survive, even if they're making money at jobs and stuff. Um, and, I mean... There's actually some pretty clear actual reasons why that's happening, I think. I mean, you'll probably disagree depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on, but, you know. Anyways, without getting too political here, one of the, one of the quote unquote solutions that gets thrown around for this problem often is universal basic income. Um, this, you know, the Sam Altman's company Worldcoin is trying to basically make a cryptocurrency that will, you know, provide people universal basic income available to everyone on earth, not connected to any governments or anything. All right. Sounds noble as a, as a thought and an endeavor, but, uh, 
you know, what's the problem? I mean, this almost sounds too good to be true. Yeah. So there's a couple of weird red flags with this whole story. I won't get into the big, crazy sci-fi one until the very end because there's other more big problems with that. But, you know, we'll leave that as a little bit of a titillating hook to keep you listening. First of all, it's, you know, they, they raised $25 million from investors for this uh, cryptocurrency that's supposed to be acting as a universal basic income for people around the world. Um, but when you raise $25 million from investors, traditionally, that should mean that they want their money back with, you know, interest at some point, or at the very least, if I put $25 million in, I would expect a return of more than $25 million back, right? You'd think so. That's uh, traditionally how private investment works. Yeah. Now, granted, I mean, things have kind of turned that a little bit on its head over the last few years with Uber and Tesla and things like that basically not being profitable companies in the traditional sense where, you know, their value keeps going up despite the fact that they don't really have the profits to show for it. I mean, yeah, there's lots of different micro reasons why they don't have the profits and they're actually still fine, successful, blah, blah, blah. But it's still, you know, the the traditional model doesn't work. And I get that this might be one of those things. But still, it's a kind of a bit of a red flag to me. It's just like, this is supposed to be universal basic income. Why are there investors, you know, what are they getting out of this? Mm-hmm. Why, why is there private investment in something that uh, is meant to be an altruistic exercise? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, there's, that's really the, the, the big issue, uh, the, the big concrete issue for me anyways. Uh, the, the second issue I have with this, and again, we haven't gotten into the sci-fi issue yet. Um, though it's not really sci-fi at this point, I guess it's now sci reality, <laughs> but yeah, we're not quite there yet. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But my second point is when I see this, my understanding of cryptocurrency is that basically it seems like anyone can make their own cryptocurrency because it's all just code that lives out there. And as long as you are able to basically just make a little bit of startup infrastructure to do it, you can just kind of make your own. If you remember a few years ago when after Bitcoin kind of took off a, a little bit initially, we saw a glut of, a, you know, a huge amount of crazy cryptocurrency start coming out. I think the most notably ridiculous one being called Dogecoin, right? You know, related to that meme with the Shiba Inu from like years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, it still feels very much like, oh, I'm just going to make my own cryptocurrency. And then, you know, great. Now I have my own cryptocurrency and I'm mining it. But they're only worth what the market determines. So like it's effectively the same thing as like, if no one thinks they're worth anything, how is it any different from you printing your own money and saying, Oh yeah, great. I'll give you universal basic income here. You you can have a million dentist dollars. That'll get you going. It's like, uh, but it's not real money. Right? Uh, it, it's not. And uh, that seems to be uh, something that maybe isn't always taken into account. That, sure, you can have, you know, X amount uh, 
invested in or holding whatever crypto, but it's only worth what uh, the government of the land will accept it as, if they accept it as, or even other private retailers uh, or, or businesses will accept it in exchange for goods and services. If nobody acknowledges or recognizes the currency you're holding, then what good is it to you? What value does it really have? Yeah. Um, and now we get finally, unless you had any other issues before the scientific, the, the science fiction issue. Uh, no, I just, uh, just, uh, tagging on to the, the crypto, I was going to, uh, point out that I was reminded of the, uh, uh, itchy and scratchy dollars, uh, from, oh, yes. from the Simpsons, how Homer spent like, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars buying itchy and scratchy dollars at itchy and scratchy land, but nowhere accepted itchy and scratchy dollars. Yeah, the second he enters the park, <laughs> all the signs say no itchy and scratchy dollars, and he's just like, no. Or I guess alternatively, the other the other thing to tag into that would have been on uh, the Street Fighter movie with Raul Julia and Jean-Claude Van Damme. At some point, you know, one of his main henchmen, I believe it was Sagat, DJ. was looking – DJ at the – towards the end was looking for payment, and he's like, here's your payment, four billion bison dollars. He's like, bison dollars, you're mad. He's just like, I can't <laughs> – <laughs> it's like this is your BS money. This isn't real money. What are you doing? <laughs> it's like you're paying me in this. What the hell is this? Um, but yeah. So yeah. Um, now onto the the science fiction issue here. So I'll just I'll just read you know this line from uh, Gizmodo, which was from you know I guess transposed from a Bloomberg article, which is how I first saw this story. Um, and they say here, what supposedly makes WorldCoin different here is it adds a hardware component to cryptocurrency in a bid to ensure, and I quote here, ensure both humanness and uniqueness of everybody signing up while maintaining their privacy and the overall transparency of a permissionless blockchain. Um, and what this actually is, is uh, I've actually got the, the Bloomberg article open here. Uh it's a it's an iris scanner. So it's an eyeball scanner is this piece of hardware. And according to one of the people involved in this world coin, they say iris scanning is an essential part of the plan because it can prevent people from trying to register multiple times to defraud the system. Um and you know, he they also try to assuage any fears of just saying they're aware of the privacy implications of handing over biometric information to a tiny startup, and they claim that WorldCoin will make the process as transparent as possible so users can see how the data is used. Um and they're basically just assuring us that the iris scan will all it's being used for is a like producing a unique numerical code for each person and that the image is then you know deleted and never stored. Uh, I have several issues with this. <laughs> so, yeah, sure. Your, your transparency, things are never deleted, never stored. Fine. You think that this is going to be a very unique way of uniquely identifying people. Um, I've been a developer for long enough that, you know, any, any type of like super unique format that I can think of, of like, oh, well, if we do it this way, there's, it's a hundred million characters long. There's no way it'll, you know, we'll get collisions, even when using like, you know, crazy random number generators and things like that. Usually like, if the character, if the, if the limit is, if the character limit's long enough, 
you know, theoretically, you know, you're not going to get any sort of repeats or anything until like some astronomical number. And it's just like, there's not that many people in the world. There can't be that many people in the world. Even if you run some, you know, uh, random, like, uh, projection of how many people there will be on the planet after some certain amount of time, like fine, great. But I also know that weird things happen, like, I bet they'll probably hit up against some sort of limitation very quickly. Like, they'll probably think, oh, we'll get all these unique eyeballs and that'll be the unique identifier. And I guarantee you'll have a couple of people very quickly hit a collision. We both scanned. We had the same value. Sounds unlikely, but unlikely doesn't mean impossible. That's true, and that, uh, also depends how many fields they are scanning and registering a uh, data value for or data point for. You know, uh, is it yeah. f- uh, five points, six points, ten points in the retinal image? Well, it's probably going to be some sort of hashing based on the whole image. Um, I don't know how many megapixels the image is going to be. Like, it might be like a ludicrous, like high number of characters. It might be like fifty thousand characters long, and yeah, but. And it might be, you know, who knows what values the characters could hold. But impossible, like unlikely, like unlikely is not the same as impossible is all I'm saying. Secondly, I wonder how long or how quickly someone will figure out some sort of 3D printing thing to make a, um, basically a contact lens that you can put over your eye to basically actually defraud the system. They say it's impossible to defraud it because they're actually doing an iris scan. But like, you know, there are, you know, contact lenses are a thing. And I'm sure there's people have technology to be able to do micro cuts and like microwave things. So that's a thing, right? Uh, absolutely. It, uh, it sounds like it could be. We've seen that, that concept at least, uh, demonstrated, uh, in pieces of sci-fi. I think, you know, in Mission Impossible movies, uh, I think even in Minority Report, although, yeah, I think it was some, there was something like that in Minority Report. So the general idea of those, uh, is, does exist and people basically have to work backwards from there to, minimize that technology enough so that they can work in the application of a contact lens. And of course, something like this would maybe speed up that process and give people or, uh, uh, some, some people of, uh, uh, you know, less scrupulous, uh, uh, morality might speed up their process, their R and D on this to, uh, try and get some free world coin because why the hell not? Of course. And another issue with any time you're invoking biometrics, my standard take on this that I tell anyone whenever they're talking about like how cool biometrics can be, you only have one set of biometrics technically. Like you're like if they scan your eyes a million times and it always shows up at the same value, you better hope that your account doesn't get compromised. If your account gets compromised, it's not a password. You can't reset your password in this case. If your password is your eyes, you can't reset that. 
This is true, and I think like, that's a point that never really gets thought of or expressed when speaking about biometrics. The impression I have of uh, uh, just hearing people see and talk about biometrics uh, in as it relates to cybersecurity is that it's some sort of holy grail. It's some sort of impenetrable wall that, you know, uh, biometrics, uh, uh, you know, is better and safer than something like a password. I mean, maybe what is actually better than a password are one-time codes, like that you're able to prove in the moment who you are. That's better than a password, which is why, you know, a, like, I don't want to specifically endorse anything, but like a thing like Google Authenticator is great because the code rolls over every minute. And as long as your account for whatever thing you're logging into is connected to that specific instance of Google Authenticator, like you can tr- log in with your password, but it'll then say, okay, enter your code. And while you're entering your code, it has to be the one that's valid right now. As soon as it's invalid, it, the code is new and it changes every minute. So that's more secure than a password. And it changes every minute. And as long as the connection's made, uh, but yeah, I mean, there is no perfect system, of course. Like if you lose your phone or you need to, you, you lost, you know, your initial password or like you somehow other got locked out of the account or like, you know, someone stole your authenticator from your phone onto another phone. That's a different problem, but still like at least those things can be kind of, you know, regenerated and changed biometrics. Like unless like, like you can't change that. Like you're not going to be able to change your fingerprint. Like if they're using fingerprint scanning, they're going to use face scanning. You can't really change your face unless you get plastic surgery and stuff. And like retina scanning, you only have one set of retinas. Like, like <laughs> again, like if it gets somehow um, compromised, that's all you've got. You only have the one shot. You can't like you can't re- you can't rejig your eyes to see you have a new set of eyes to re get into your account. <laughs> that's true. You can't spin up a, a new you know you know fingerprint. You can't spin up a new you know retinal impression with ver- you know different data points uh, according to a retinal scan. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this is my standard line I give anytime people bring up biometrics and you know connecting to oh this is this is what uniquely identifies me to me. It's like yeah, sure for now. All it takes is a hacker to figure out how to, you know, get it off you and then use it their own version. And that doesn't mean, you know, like the gruesome version that we always see in movies of like someone killing you and ripping your eyeball out and then having it on a toothpick basically. No, like there's other ways of doing it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's literally just whatever data it feeds through and whatever means all they need is some sort of overlay that can act as the retinal scanner. It might be some 3D printed thing. Who knows? But yeah. And uh, also, too, worth pointing out that uh, biometric information, as unique as your fingerprints are, as unique as your retinal scan is, and whatever other points that might be used for security purposes, that is, you know, in theory, unique to you and you alone, uh, but it's analog. As soon it is, as it is scanned by some sort of device, it gets interpreted. It becomes code, it becomes ones and zeros, to put it very simply. That could then be potentially accessed 
depending on whatever security layers are involved by WorldCoin here or God knows whatever other company in the future. But once it becomes interpreted as ones and zeros, lines of code, it can be accessed, but, you know, potentially by some no good actors from who knows where. Well, that's what I mean. Like if they, if someone works out an algorithm to reverse engineer, like, like usually these scanning things are put through what they call a one way hashing algorithm, which, you know, you scan the value, it goes through a one way hash. And then that one way hash messes the numbers all up in a specific way. Like that's normally how passwords work. I mean, in case anyone out there is unaware, no, your password is never actually stored on a server. Like if your password is the word dog, it's basically the word dog is then put through what they call a hashing algorithm. You know, a, a very old basic one is called MD5, which is basically just, you know, it, it runs like a check digit on it. Like it basically adds up all the values and then like basically multiplies them in a certain way that makes them effectively like 128 characters long. And it's like the 128 character long after, you know, like doing this math on the input equals this thing. So it's like, you'll, you'll normally see like, so when you do that math over and over again, like the word dog plus all this math equals this character is going to be different than the word, you know, you know, friend, if that's someone else's password, friend is going to be different than, you know, dog in this case, when using this math, but they're normalized in this way. And normally you can't reverse engineer them without like a crazy amount of like computational work and stuff. And anyways, like they're, they're normally very secure, but they're not a hundred percent foolproof. If people want to put enough brain power and hardware power behind it, they can still reverse engineer it. So if your eyeball scanning is being, you know, put through into some sort of, through some sort of hash or whatever and stored on some server somewhere, someone could theoretically then, you know, figure out like, Hey, this might be what, you know, if they have a 3D, like I keep coming back to 3D printing because, you know, that might make sense where they can make a thing that looks like an eyeball and then print whatever the, the representation of the end result, you know, of that eyeballs, you know, hashing, like this is what ends up hashing to that value as well. So now when I scan this thing, it gets into your account. If that makes sense. I, I'm getting it. And, uh, uh, I, I mean, yeah. it, it's one of the, you know, I, I guess problems that, uh, you know, to be wary of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, one of the other kind of interesting things though, too, with hashing, just to kind of get complicated for a second <laughs> is some, some older hashing mechanisms have a higher likelihood of having what they call collisions. So like MD5, for example, they don't really use anymore. It was made in like the late, 60s, early 70s, if I'm not mistaken, um, maybe mid-70s, whatever it was. MD5, it was sort of a standard for a while until computers got powerful enough to crack it. But what they actually found with MD5 hashing is like you can basically have any sort of input and it brings it down to like I think it was 128 characters, which they call the MD5 checksum or the MD5 hash, which, again, all of the binary information – like it's converted to binary and then all this stuff is added up and then multiplied out and then it turns into 128 characters. What can happen sometimes with MD5 hashing is multiple different things can hash out to the same hash. 
So like, I'm not saying this is exactly what it is, but for example, if my password or my eyeball, or I'll, I'll just use passwords for more simplicity's sake, because like that's effectively all the eyeball scanning is, is just a complicated way of entering in a password. So again, like Mike the Legend said, it just turns into code. So like they scan their eyeball, it actually gets represented as a series of ones and zeros, but that's also what a password is. At the end of the day, the word dog is then translated into a bunch of ones and zeros, but once it goes through a one-way hash, it turns into this, you know, 128 whatever characters that the word dog might actually equal the word friend, depending on the hashing algorithm that they use. So dog might equal friend, and then I might be able to log into your account if your account, if your password was dog or friend, because I know they're both the same, if that makes sense. No, I, I'm getting it. Yeah, so like, they call that a hash collision, and that's another thing that might happen with these eyeball things too. So, again, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm always wary of biometrics, and like, anytime the people claim, you know, oh, this is something that you and only you can have, it's like, no, it's not. Hackers are smarter than you. They're gonna figure something out that you never thought of very quickly, and it's gonna go off the rails at some point. Like, there's going to be, you know, things published around and, like, you know, workarounds and hacks and things like that. And what do you do at that point if you really put everything into this eyeball scanning and with the claim of, like, it's going to be perfectly unique when someone basically defeats it with something? Because that's what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. Like I said, it's almost an invitation to uh, to come and crack this system. Unless that's where the money comes from <laughs> somehow. I, I, maybe that's the investors are playing both sides. Maybe. I don't know. Who the hell knows? Uh, one other point to, uh, to mention about this, uh, world coin system, uh, and how they'll actually go about acquiring a retinal scan, uh, from your eyeball f- to be your unique code that will access, give you access to this unique world coin universal basic income. Should it ever come to pass? Apparently in some cities throughout the world, uh, the WorldCoin company is testing uh, their own new retinal scanner that apparently is the size of a basketball. And there's 20 of these prototypes going around uh, this eyeball scanner. And each prototype costs about $5,000. So okay. maybe that's the real end game here is, uh, you know, sure, there will be a unique crypto with unique eyeball scanning technology and whatnot, but this is all a means to uh, really generate and perfect and then sell this retinal scanning technology. Yeah. I mean, if there are $5,000 each, every city will probably need a few of them. Just think of how many cities there are in the world. I guess maybe that's how they're making their money. But, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just uh, it's another crypto, and it's, you know, this also has the potential to turn into more, like, e-waste garbage, you know, these basketball-sized scanners, once people realize that they're actually not really a useful thing in the long run because hackers defeated it super fast, or even if it's not super fast, even if it takes hackers 10 years, what do you do when your economy is also entrenched in this world coin thing, and now hackers have figured out how to crack it and basically exploit it? Well, I guess you're screwed, right? <laughs> yeah, really uh, kind of makes you wish you still had, you know, hard cash uh, paper currency or coins even. Can't hack yeah. those. 
No. I mean, you can counterfeit them, but you know, we're, well, you can try counterfeiting them. And, uh, there's, there's people who are good at anti-counterfeiting measures to, to figure out if it's counterfeit or not. But anyways, yeah. That, that's all for a, uh, a future dystopian society. We just wanted to uh, make you aware of that. But uh, let's say we get to that future, you know, dystopian society, and maybe it's not as bad as we're making it out to be. And you'll be receiving, you know, you, I, and everyone else will be receiving some kind of universal basic income. Well, what are you going to spend your money on? Well, quite possibly, we're going to be spending it on uh, paying a lot of money for collectible video games because... We have a new record for the most expensive uh, collectible video game sold at auction now. A record that was just set the other day. Uh, it was an auction uh, hosted by Heritage Auctions down in Dallas, Texas. They seem to be the, uh, the go-to auction house for anyone who has a valuable old cartridge slash old uh, collectible video game to sell these days. And they had one come through. I guess they're for this weekend that uh, this episode was posted. They're running a retro games weekend where they're doing a lot of auctions of old collectible games. But the most collectible one is what kicked off their big weekend. It was a copy of Legend of Zelda for the NES that was dated back to late 1987 and sold at auction for a record-setting price of eight hundred seventy thousand. U.S. dollars. Actually, there's a second part here. I mean, <laughs> I think arguably, like, this actually just happened, like, because I saw it pop up earlier, I think just before we recorded, and I, I realized that actually this record has already been broken. What? Yeah, so posted today, just a little bit ago, um, a sealed copy of Super Mario 64 sold at auction for $1.5 million. What? Yeah. Um, so we can talk about the Legend of Zelda because first of all, like that's a crazy value. Um, yeah, the, uh, it, its record was $870,000. Uh, well, we're recording here on July 11th. Uh, the, it sold for that amount on the July 9th today on July 11th. Yeah, today on July 11th, Super Mario 64 was sold for $1,560,000. Um, this Super Mario 64 copy was given a 9.8 rating on the WADA scale. Uh, and Heritage Auctions says it was just one of the fewer than five known sealed copies in such incredible condition. Um, of course, like, that doesn't take anything away from The Legend of Zelda. Like, this is insane. <laughs> like... $870,000. It was rated, uh, water 9.0, I believe. 9.0. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. 9.0, uh, which is super impressive. Um, Mario 64 yeah. getting 9.8. Yeah. Is insane. Yes. Like that is as close to mint as you can almost possibly get. Yes. Um, so this last week has been like, yeah, I, we started talking about Legend of Zelda, but really what the ludicrous leadoff is, is this past week, two crazy high priced expensive games have basically sold for like two and a half million dollars together between yeah. two video games. 
So when I initially came across the Legend of Zelda story uh, and saw that it sold for 870,000 US dollars, the thoughts, uh, they kind of formed at my, uh, in my head at that time was that, okay, the next game we're going to see, that's finally going to be the collectible game that crosses the million dollar uh, auction price. Little did I know uh, that it would happen in two days' time, and also little did I know, little could I have known that it no, would not only cross the million-dollar threshold, it would cross the $1.5 million dollar threshold. So it just skipped along, you know, hopped over that million-dollar threshold, and just kept the hell on going. Yeah, like, you would think that these things would be incremental a little bit more than they have been, because, you know, for a while, that's how it was going. Like, you know, we saw games going for, like, two, $200,000, 300000 600000 now 870000 was like, holy crap, this is a record. And then, you know, I think it was safe to assume $1 million would be the next record, but $1.5 A good God. So are we, like, what's the next one that, that gets, like, what's the next record? $3 million? Well, I was tempted to say $2 million, but I think $3 million is not that uh, insane an amount at this moment. Like, given that, you know, the, the difference between 870 and one point, like 870,000 and 1.5 million is like, it doubled. you know, it, it's pretty much like, you know, another 800-ish thousand dollars more to get to that point. Like, I don't think it's, you know, unreasonable to say that the next jump will be more than 800-ish thousand dollars. Uh, no, basically the, uh, uh, the, the amount almost doubled from Legend of Zelda to Mario 64. Will it double again? I, it's not entirely impossible. I, I'm, in, I think what's impressing me more than the figure, because the, the figure of 1.5 million, uh, as the auction price for this copy of Super Mario 64, that's just unfathomable, unfathomable to me at this moment because, I mean, my god, I, I don't think I'll ever see that amount, uh, uh, you know, of money, you know, anytime soon. Uh, but yeah. a 9.8 rating on the water scale for, for its condition. It, and this was presumably owned by a person bought at a store back in the long ago days, back, you know, 25 years ago when this game first came out or close to when it first came out. How do you maintain a game in almost near mint condition for 25 years? Yeah. I mean, my copy of Super Mario 64 is haggard as hell. <laughs> no, but granted, you know, I, I also bought it when I was a younger teenager. So yeah. Uh, no, was I even a teenager yet? I wasn't quite a teenager yet. No. No, you, um, you wouldn't have been. No, so <laughs> when I bought it, it was in 1996. So, yeah. No, granted, like, I, it almost makes you wonder if we're now seeing people basically just getting their return on investment. Like, maybe, maybe there have been some people that basically had some foresight to know, oh, these things are going to be collectible. I'm going to buy a copy and then I'm going to basically put it in my, uh, you know, my, my temperature climate controlled chamber that I have in my, you know, in my whatever, my mansion or whatever you want to say. I don't know if it's even rich people. Like maybe they have like some sort of like hermetically sealed like safe or something that they're just putting some of these things in. And now they're starting to go, okay, the time's right to pull this one out. 
I, I mean, not impossible. I mean, I, I can imagine there would have been some people who have done that. I've heard, uh, stories in past of, uh, individuals who, uh, were buying toys, like original run G.I. Joe's or original run, uh, Transformers, uh, G1 Transformer figures, buying multiple copies of them at the time, or, yeah, multiple copies, you know, so they can have one to play with or whatnot, and then one or two to just store and keep as a collectible for future sale. So the idea of someone having the the foresight to buy a copy of Mario 64 when it was new on sale in 1996 and hold for a future date to to sell it is not beyond the realm of possibility but to to sell it for 1.56 million dollars that's beyond imagination at that point that is one hell of a return on investment yeah, I mean, granted, it wasn't the cheapest when it first came out. If, if I recall, I think I ended up spending sixty, seventy dollars at the time in nineteen ninety six dollars. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that would be, I think, if the if if I'm if I recall, you know, last time I checked something like this, that would be close to like, I think it was close to a hundred ten, hundred twenty now dollars. So. Granted, spending $120 even just to have it, you know, balloon into $1.5 million, I'll make that investment. <laughs> That's a good day at the office. It's like, I'll do 10 times that investment right now. Like, give me a break. Like, holy, holy crap. If you can tell me that, you know, buying 10 of, 10 copies of some video game will, you know, make me crazy rich in like 20 years. Yeah. Do it. I'll roll that dice. <laughs> uh, exactly. I think as uh, you and I have covered these auctions over the past really year, maybe two years, the market for collectible video games seems to have just gone wacko bazoo. Yes. Cuckoo bananas, as it were. <laughs> it's both those things and then some with a, a, you know, with a bag of chips on the side. It's yes. Uh, and the comment I've read before from, uh, I think, commentary pieces on Kotaku and other sites is that there's people with money or collectors with money from other fields like art, perhaps comics, perhaps uh, uh, sporting cards or whatnot, who maybe don't like the prices of what they're seeing for collectible items in those areas. And they're starting to turn their attention to video games as being an untapped collectible market. And now the prices are starting to meet that influx of new money. Yeah. Like there's also, there's a, just to, to kind of like interject for one second. Also, you know, I know, I normally don't like going through internet comments here, but on Kotaku here, when they talk about this sealed comment, the sealed copy of, um, Mario 64, there's a very interesting comment here from a, uh, a commenter named what Jack Burton always says. Uh, it's in reply to another comment, but the comment it's replying to doesn't really matter. They're saying that, uh, worth reiterating that condition or not, these record-breaking auctions are all for games that are incredibly common and sold millions of copies. And like, they go on to say that this is like an absolutely stock garage stored 98 four-cylinder Chevy Malibu with 12 miles on the odometer selling for like 10 times of the value of any Shelby Mustang GT500 Super Snake ever because some rich bonehead recognized the former in so many mall parking lots and thought, hey, people like this one, (laughs) which is absolutely right. You know, like, like that's crazy. Like, I don't actually understand where the valuation like this comes from. Because, yeah, like, everyone had Mario 64. If you had an N64, 
You had Mario 64. Uh, like according to the Wikipedia article for the list of best-selling N64 video games, Mario 64 sold almost 12 million copies. Like there's 12 million of those going out there. Like does the fact that one was in pristine condition warrant it being worth $1.5 million? Uh, in this case, yes, apparently, but to, to you, but and why? I, I, I don't think we'll ever be able to truly understand that. Uh, and that it really is the condition that is the main selling point and the main driving point for this reaching the $1.56 million threshold. It, there's not even any sort of comment, uh, or mention of the rarity of this copy or this version of Mario 64. It's not as though it's from the very first print run of copies of Mario 64. It's not for, it doesn't have any sort of uh, flaw that was unique to just five prints of the game or anything like that. No, everything is indicating it's literally just the condition of this, ver- of this cartridge of not even car- cartridge. It's the box is the sealed box still with the store cellophane on it. Yeah. And that's so strange to me that that would be enough. Like in growing up, you know, when we would see pieces of collectibles, you know, going for ludicrous amounts, like there had to be both the element of rarity as well as, you know, how pristine in condition it was, but both factored in, like it could have been like the most pristine condition, but if it wasn't rare, you're not going to get any money for it. Like just look at magic cards traditionally, like, like, if it was a common magic card, like, okay, it's in really good condition. Here's your five bucks. Cause it's not rare. Like, okay, whatever. It's a foil card, but it's not like, you know, super rare. Like, it, you know, there's like thousands of these out there. Like, okay. However, like, if it was, you know, a super rare card, but in bad condition, it's like, okay, well, it might be worth a little bit more because of its rarity, but you know, it's not worth what it could be because it's in, it's pretty torn up. But like you would, when things would, you know, converge and it's like, oh, it's super rare and it's in really good condition. That's when the money would be made. This is literally just, oh, it's in really good condition. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, in the case of the Legend of Zelda cartridge that, you know, I thought was a, a, you know, a big deal until you pointed out the new information of this day that came down literally just before we hit record on this particular episode the copy of Legend of Zelda for NES that uh, was sold at Heritage Auctions for $870,000, which was for two whole days the record holder for the most expensive collectible video game sold, uh, it is from a very early run of copies of Legend of Zelda for the NES. According to uh, Heritage Auctions in their blurb and uh, press release that you know was uh, trying to drum up uh, interest uh, and you know came out after the... Uh, auction was concluded, uh, the cartridge they sold was the only copy from that particular production run ever offered, and uh, they believed it's uh, one of only a few in existence still in sealed condition. Uh, the variant was only produced for a few months in late 1987 before it was replaced by a newer variant in early 1988. Heritage Auctions said uh, the variant sold for that $870,000 price point uh, is preceded only by one other variant, the true first production run, However, Heritage Auctions believes that only a single sealed copy of that first production run still exists, and there's no telling whether or not that copy will ever come to market. So, rarity 
is a big driving point for that Legend of Zelda copy that sold for what was what at the time seemed like a crazy amount of money. Yeah, sure, but there, there doesn't seem like there's a rarity component to the Super Mario sixty four. Sure doesn't. Uh, now, condition wise, there's a bit of a difference. Legends, you know, this Legend of Zelda copy was uh, rated nine point A by Wata, with again ten being the highest possible condition. Compare that to this Mario sixty four that again was rated as a nine point eight on the Wata scale. Ten is basically mint straight from the factory, untouched by human hands. You know, it, it is, it has come into someone's presence, uh, and only ever sat on the softest, most satiny pillows. Yeah. So there's, there is, I know this is like a different discussion, but there's a thing that bothers me about when games that are sealed go for large amounts of money. Can you, how do you verify that the game is the game? But also, does it matter at that point? Like, what are you actually buying? <laughs> you know, like, maybe I'm just, you know, making a meta commentary on, you know, you know, collecting things, but how do you know that they didn't make a mistake? What if this is actually not Super Mario 64? What if it was some other game? Oh, but then does that make it more worth money? <laughs> like, like what if a, what if a copy of The Legend of Zelda made into the Super Mario 64 box? But you'll never tell because, you know, you're never going to open it up. Like, what if, you know, what if it's like Mario Tennis or some garbage game or something? Who, like, I have so many questions. It's, this is basically like the Schrodinger's cat thing, right? Uh, a little bit. And you're, you can ultimately drive yourself mad, uh, spiraling down th- this, uh, this train of thoughts as you further explore this rabbit hole of collectability and high price collectibles too. Because it is all very dependent on the, uh, individual collector who's willing to shell out the money for the item at that moment. Yeah. Like, it, these sorts of auctions are also very much, uh, very much moments in time. <laughs> you know, it is the right person with the right amount of money at the right time with the right item up for bid. Any of those factors changes, you're going to get a different outcome. Maybe you get, you know, more money paid, maybe you get less money paid. I don't know. But... Either way, conditions lined up for a $1.56 million price point being paid for a copy of Super Mario 64. Still sealed, yeah. in box, touched only by angels to come into someone's possession, sat in a hermetically sealed safe for 25 years, now put up at auction, selling or being sold by Heritage Auctions for a stupid amount of money. Good God. Like... I also saw a lot of cries in various uh, comment sections that, you know, may like, well, just questions of like, how many of these auctions are money laundering? Like a lot of art sales are money laundering, right? Uh, like, quite possibly. I, I, I can't speak to that not being in the art world or a collector. Yeah. But it's like, I don't know. It, it's, it's bananas to me. It's like you, <laughs> This is just a way to move large sums of money around at this point. Cause it's like, you don't actually know it is what it is. Like it, it literally could be like anything in that box. Uh, quite possibly. Yes. But let's, let's argue for yeah. argument's sake that it's, that it is, that it's, you know, as represented, that it is actually a still 
perfectly sealed copy of Super Mario 64, fresh from the production line that was bought early when it uh, went on sale at whatever store that this person or the seller bought it from, and they kept it in mint condition, locked away for 25 years, and this person who paid the you know the amount of money, they're on the up and up. They're just a legitimate collector. I mean, they'll sell this in a couple of years and make their money back. That's fine. In the meantime, what do you do with it? Yeah. It's <laughs> not an art piece that you can display and be proud of. Like, my the smartass in me wants to say, does this spark joy? <laughs> my, my copy of Super Mario 64, I can pull out of the drawer that it's in any time I want and hook up my N64 and actually play it and not feel bad. Like, I know it still works. The cartridges pretty much last forever. I mean, it hasn't reached the point where, like, it's starting to corrode or anything yet, and I don't know when that point is. Probably not for another 100, 200 years anyways. The battery might die in it, but that's a different problem, and those, those can always be replaced. But, yeah, it's... Like, mine you can get more utility out of, and mine's probably only worth, like, I bet it's worth what I paid for it. <laughs> Maybe way less. It might only be worth, like, you know, 20 bucks. Who knows? Right? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I guess this is, like, the argument against collecting for, like, this level of collection stuff. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think this is a whole other world that uh, you and I just simply – have never really peered into. We're only seeing these, uh, these news releases and these stories come out from the world of, of collecting and collectibles and high priced and high end collectibles at that, you know, the big money world of auctions and collectibles that, uh, the common person like you and I and, and the plebes, uh, will never really get to, uh, ever see. But, uh, you know, that's okay. I'm okay. To yeah. never really peer into that world, because I don't know if I want to uh, spend too long in that world. It would drive me up the wall. You know, this to- world makes me feel worse things for humanity. <laughs> you know, like when, like literally, like this is like you have one point five million dollars just kicking around, and this is what you're going to spend it on. Like, you're a piece of garbage. Like, I, I mean. <sighs> Yeah, I, I feel good about saying that. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I was gonna say, oh, but maybe no, no. There, I feel good about saying that. <laughs> like you're a piece of garbage. Like, like arguably, you know, buying a like a, a ludicrous house. Sure, it's it's you know also maybe bad, but at least there's more utility in it, and at least it's a place where you're living. Like, if you're gonna spend that level of money on a house, like, because you can definitely buy in most places a, a pretty nice house for this. I mean. Where we live, you can definitely buy a really nice house for that amount of money. Um, God, yes, yeah, you uh, you can buy multiple, you know, nice houses for that money. Yeah, maybe not everywhere in our country and other countries. I mean, I know in Toronto and stuff, like you know that that'll get you a house. I know in Vancouver that'll get you a house in certain places as well. But yeah, still, like at least that's a house. Like you can justify owning a house a lot more than you can justify owning. A game you can't play, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, that's, uh, again, you start to think more like this the older you get, and I'm definitely at that point in my, you know, my life now where I'm, I, I you know, don't get it. 
Uh, this kind of reminds me of uh, a quote I've, I've seen before when talking about some of the, the big money stories or just uh, ridiculous stories uh, relating to, say, Elon Musk or crypto or whatnot. Uh, and that quote being, eat the rich. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that is uh, as appropriate now as it uh, was then and will continue to be. And, uh, yeah, I mean, even tying back into the first ludicrous leadoff, which was our first story that we started talking about maybe 40 minutes ago, <laughs> was, uh, you know, if the people who have that sort of money to invest in WorldCoin, uh, the cryptocurrency, with the idea or is outwardly spoken aim of it being a, a universal basic income to, to help and uh, better people's lives... If they have that kind of money, why don't they just do more to directly benefit people? You know, support charities, take more action in their local communities, distribute a universal basic income all on their own. You know, this is kind of what drives me up the wall when I see Jeff Bezos pouring so much of his time, money, effort, and overall resources into his uh, uh, his space company and the world of space travel. He has the most resources available to him uh, in terms of money of any human in the history of our existence on this planet. And yet he's choosing to put so much of that so he can fly into space. Yeah. And not even live there. Like, I know there's also like, just as another thing, I I saw sort of like a viral thread go around where someone, you know, was talking on behalf of like, you know, their partner who was, you know, a NASA engineer or whatever. And they were saying, yeah, so for those of you who are worried that, you know, the billionaires are basically building spaceships so they can, you know, screw the planet up and leave. no, there's a whole reason why anytime they launch a spaceship up and anytime someone's in outer space for any period of time, they literally need like a hundred people on the ground on earth, helping them do things, guiding them around the way, you know, monitoring their vitals and stuff because like space is not meant to support anything. <laughs> like they're, they're going to, they're going to get up there and because they're not traditional astronauts trained in the traditional astronaut way, they're not going to be able to be up there for very long. They're going to have to come right back. So it's effectively just a huge waste of their own money. That's Which true. is even worse. Yeah. It's, it's even worse. Like, you're, it's just, you have all this money. You're not using it for literally any good. <laughs> like, at least with NASA missions and stuff, thing, it used to be that, like, you know, there was a lot of research components going into these things. So, you know, you end up seeing like, you know, technologies that can, you know, help sustain new innovations in other areas. Like because of the sixties moon missions, we ended up seeing, you know, things like Teflon and, you know, like vulcanization and things like that come out. And it's just like, okay, like we have better tires. Now we have better cookware. We have better, you know, thermal, like, technology for clothes and stuff and like there's tangible things that have come from it what's the tangible thing that's going to come from a billionaire getting to see the earth out a window for you know two minutes that they spent a billion dollars on we get to be jealous of them for minutes on end (laughs) great whereas all that money could be like i don't know Again, this is me getting older and me thinking this is a huge waste and what are you doing? There's real problems here. You could actually be putting that money towards and you could actually be viewed, you know, historically in a good light if you cared, but you don't care. You're just a narcissist. Like, what are you doing? 
I, I suppose that's uh, one of the disconnects, uh, you know, you and I and so many others will experience by not being part of that 1%. Yeah, well, exactly, I guess. I mean, yeah, we won't pay $1.5 million for a copy of Mario 64, even if it is still sealed. We won't spend the, you know, tens of millions, or if not billions, to travel into space for a couple minutes just to, you know, get up there, you know, how, ha- you know, look around, take some nice pictures and uh, come back down. You know, we won't, be, much. won't be flying up in Jave. Jeff Bezos' uh, penis rocket anytime soon. <laughs> no. Which, if you've seen, no. pi- seen pictures of, that is a phallic rocket. Yep. I mean, there's usually a connection between all these different things, you know, being, you know, having that level of money that you're not really sharing with anyone, being obsessed with, you know, penis shaped things. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I yeah. don't know. There's, uh, I, I Usually equi- some sort of connection. Yeah, I equate it to uh, being in the same vein as uh, here on Earth, uh, someone who might have a uh, uh, a big truck, a big pickup truck, big pickup truck that they've spent a lot of time and money putting into raising with the oversized tractor tires, with a whole lot of uh, uh, accoutrement and accessories all around uh, to make it look yeah. as gaudy and uh, uh, brutish as possible. Yeah, I, I uh, believe there's compensation uh, in that too. Yes, perhaps some overcompensation. Uh, true. I I am uh, down the street. Uh, I drive most often to uh, get to my place of employment. I pass by one of those vehicles and uh, one of those pickup trucks, I should say, and I'm tempted every time to uh, just kind of stop, pull over to the side of the road, and leave a, a, a note underneath the person's windshield wiper, you know, climbing a ladder to get up there because it's one of those raised tractor tire trucks, and just leave a note that sim- says, you know, obviously money can't buy good taste. Yeah. <laughs> I don't because that makes me sound like I'm some new, you know, uh, member of like the New York Literature Society or something, but, uh, yeah. which I'm not, I'm far from it, but still it just bothers me every time. But, uh, uh, that being said, let's, uh, move along to, uh, some actual news. And, uh, I think just based on the timing of things, what's going to be our only main news story of this week as we yeah, are now so. powered <laughs> 10 into things. Yeah, so, sorry for all that ranting, everyone, but hey, you know, <laughs> we got to talk about some fun stuff. We got to talk about a lot of money and things that frustrate us. Isn't that what a good podcast really is made up of? Well, <laughs> you know, we, we could hear you out there, you listeners, you know, just nodding along in agreement. Uh, a lot of you share our viewpoints, and uh, I think we opened your eyes to some things. Like, certainly, uh, a lot of you may not have heard of the, the WorldCoin stuff, uh, probably uh, not many of you would have heard of the uh, Mario 64 going for way too much money, but a lot of you heard about the news this week that Nintendo announced a new model of the Switch. Yes, coming out on October 8th, it's going to be the Nintendo Switch OLED model. Yeah, so, you know, basically, from what I understand, taking none of the complaints people had about the Switch into account... And, you know, or, you know, taking none of the suggestions that people wanted to see, you know, more powerful guts, you know, no Joy-Con drift, you know, better frame rates, better resolution, none of those things, you know, no 4K, no nothing like that. They basically just like threw, threw a dart at, you know, a dart, like a, a you know, um, a wheel. They basically yeah, a, a just wheel, spun a wheel. Basically, as it was spinning, blindfolded too. So, like you know, there was no way that they could actually like see what they were putting it on. Ripped on Saki. Yeah, ripped on Saki, 
And then also the wheel seemingly didn't really have suggestions that, you know, people cared too, too much about. And, you know, it, it ended up landing on the OLED screen. And that's the only thing different. I, I saw this story and my thought was initially, you know, the old Simpsons episode when, you know, Lisa Simpson hated how, you know, vapid the talking Malibu Stacy doll was, how it just basically <laughs> said a bunch of like, don't ask me, I'm just a girl. <laughs> like th- those kind of nonsense. And she was like, well, this should be like a role model for young women, blah, blah, blah. So she ended up developing, you know, the Lisa Lionheart doll and all this stuff. And the Malibu Stacy company got scared. So they released a new Malibu Stacy. And the only thing new was she had a new hat. <laughs> like that's, that's what I thought. I'm like, oh yeah, but this one has a new hat. <laughs> And as you mentioned, you know, before, uh, before we started recording, you were saying, just noting that because this is white in color, it kind of looks like it might fool people into thinking it might be a next generation device. Yeah, this is a, that's one of the first thoughts I had, uh, you know, digging past the, uh, the bullet points in the press release that, uh, kind of came out. for this and kind of watching through the announcement video, which if you haven't seen, we link to it on our website of the arcade show.com is that this is colored white. The switch uh, itself, the handheld unit and the dock are both colored white. Now, if you look uh, across at some uh, competition for the switch right now, there's the PlayStation five, which is also colored white. Microsoft, with their next-gen offerings, is the Xbox Series X and Series S. Uh, the Xbox Series X, uh, of course, is a cylind- you know rectangular humidor, you know, mini fridge-looking device that's colored black. But their Series S, which looks more like a flat pot of gold box of chocolates, is colored white. Yeah. So I don't think it's an accident that Nintendo, in trying to. Uh, uh, differentiate between the colors of their Switch units and the different models of Switch units, chose white for this one to put it in line with the other true next-gen consoles that have, you know, uh, newer, better, you know, guts and architecture inside that provide, you know, better graphics, better audio systems, blah, 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 you know, that have the higher price points. Because this model of Switch as well, the OLED model, also comes with a higher price point as well. This is yeah. going to be priced at 349 dollars and 99 cents us uh figure that out in your own local currency but 50 dollars more than the standard model of the switch now granted there are a couple of other smaller improvements that they made um there's quote-unquote better audio improved kickstand uh a wired LAN port in the dock though i'm not sure if that's a super concern for a lot of people and um 64 gigs of internal storage, which, you know, limited internal storage has definitely been a concern of people's for a long time, but 64 gigs is nothing. (laughs) Like if you're going to address concerns, address concerns. Don't just like half ass it and then just put out something like, what are you doing? Nintendo? Like, this is like, I want to say this is a classic Nintendo misstep. Cause like they'll, they'll do a bunch of cool stuff. Like they'll put out something really cool and then coast on the goodwill of that for a while. And then they'll make a huge misstep and then be like, well, why did this misstep? Why is this a misstep? What's wrong with this? It's like, yeah, cause you ignored all of the, you know, concerns people had about, you know, like they liked the cool thing, but they had issues with it. You didn't address any of those issues. This, this to me feels, you know, 
different but the same as when Nintendo did the first uh model revision for the Wii. You know, back however yeah. many moons ago, it went from being the the white-bodied machine to black and red. But in that model revision, that hardware revision, they took away features and took away functionality. Yeah. Like taking away stuff that people actually used. Yeah. Rather like, than actually address any of the concerns they had. Exactly. In that case, they took away the backwards compatibility with the GameCube, uh, the ability to use GameCube controllers and GameCube uh, memory cards and th- so, that sort of thing. Here, I mean... It's the same in that they're not really addressing many of the concerns that people have had, like the problems with the Joy-Cons. Yeah, uh, well, the the big issue back then, if we if we want to draw the comparison, people were like, this is – you're outputting at 480p. Everything else is HD. Like everything else is 720 or 1080. This is outputting at 480p. That's a big concern. Why can't this be full HD? My TV's full HD. This looks like kind of trash compared to my Xbox or my PlayStation like it's it's not great now kind of same idea it's like i don't know like it's like it's hd but like you know there's no 4k support whereas all the other devices do support 4k and you know not that like i don't know what the the split is on people with 4k tvs yet but i think it's becoming more common now than it was you know when the switch first came out and fine like they wouldn't have known maybe at the time but now that's one of the concerns that's arising. And the Joy-Con drift is an actual problem. So it, it is an actual problem, although in the case of the Joy-Con drift, I will cut Nintendo a bit of slack for not addressing it because I wonder if that was uh, motivated by the fact that there's litigation now and they're facing pending lawsuits or have lawsuits that are uh, we're slowly working their way through the, the courts and legal processes, uh, and that if they were to address it in any way, that might be interpreted by the suing lawyers as uh, there being a problem. Uh, An admission of guilt. Exactly. Yeah. So I can understand it for that regard, but even the simple fact of the battery life has not been enhanced in any way on this OLED model of Switch. Like, yeah. Why? Internal capacity? Okay, fine. People at this point, I think, uh, will gripe and groan about uh, the internal capacity, really, of any system. Because any onboard internal capacity uh, or storage amount is not going to be adequate. Right. But at the very least, like, if you go for, a, you know, a more reasonable number, like, who would, who in their right mind in 2021 would buy a 64 gigabyte hard drive? Like, that's not a thing you would do. You would at least buy 256 gigabytes. Certainly. And if they had upgraded to that as being the, you know, the base amount out of the box, that's a much better starting point for people. Yeah. No, granted the form factor for those hard drives might not match up with what they want, but it's like, these are actual valid concerns. Like you need to address the valid concerns, Nintendo. Like, like I don't think brightness and or whatever of the screen was one of people's concerns. I mean, I would actually say like the position they're in, they could easily actually put out a user experience survey. You know, that's like, Hey, we're several years into the life cycle of this device. Want to take, you know, five minutes out of your you know day and earn, I don't know, $5 credit towards your next purchase on the switch store, Nintendo switch store. Okay, fill out this quick, you know, survey and, you know, answer some questions about like what you like and don't like about our device. What are things you might want? And then actually 
make your <laughs> decisions based on actual user input rather than just the literal drunk on sake approach of throwing stuff at a spinning wheel and hoping for the best. Like you, you can do better than this. Every company should do better than this. Yeah, this, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I, I want to say I don't quite know what Nintendo's reasoning behind, uh, all of this was, but I wonder too if this was just what they were able to do given the current environment of supply chain constraints. Right. But I mean, still, it, it doesn't hurt, like, Sometimes doing nothing's better than doing something stupid, right? Uh, true. This, this seems like an instance where discretion and perhaps, uh, not doing something may have been the better approach. Like, uh, if anything, don't do this, uh, rev- you know, small revision of a model and then launch it as a new model for an increased price point. If anything, hold off until you can actually do a more thoroughly improved model, perhaps have a dock that can output at 4K, enhance the battery life, uh, you know, more quality of life improvements to the Switch to justify that, th- you know, $50 increase uh, in price point. Because as it stands, this price point, I don't think is going to be enough to entice people already owning a Switch to upgrade. And I don't know how much... Uh, you know, these improvements really justify that $50 increase in price point for any anybody looking to jump in and buy a Switch. Yeah. Which, as things still stand, uh, you know, here on this day, you know, the day of the recording and this day in, you know, the year of our Lord, I'm still one of those people who still has not yet bought into the Switch, you know, obviously wanting to bide my time, see what uh, Nintendo would do and what approach they would take with the... Uh, Inevitable hardware revision. Perhaps this I is also, one of them. I also know that you are a person who would actually, like, I, I, I mean, forgive me if I'm misspeaking here, but I'm pretty sure you're a person who might not care about a better screen because you probably would play this docked more often than not, correct? Uh, correct. And, uh, you know, even in the times that I would be playing it, you know, uh, undocked in handheld mode, it's a small enough screen. I'm not going to be wowed. I'll simply just take it and be more impressed with the the portability of it. And I will uh, allow for that concession of uh, screen not being as great on the handheld because I just need to play it wherever I'm seated at that moment. And that's that is the greater concern than having a 4K screen on my handheld device right there in front of me. That that whatever. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, this is. Uh, it's a hell of a thing. It comes, it is being released on October 8th, which is also the same day that Metroid Dread is released. So don't be surprised if there are some bundles, uh, with this Nintendo OLED model and also Metroid Dread. And also too, now, uh, having said that, I can actually understand why the OLED model might be colored white, because if you recall back to the trailer for Metroid Dread that came out a couple of weeks ago and during Nintendo's E3 presentation slash infomercial slash vlog. Uh, but one of the main enemies is that uh, robot called Emmy, E-M-M-I, in Metroid Dread. That's per- almost always chasing you. And it's a standard white robot. Looks like something that uh, would have been in Portal 2, or the- designed by Gladys. So perhaps the uh, coloring and design of the, uh, or at least color scheme of the Switch OLED model is to tie in with that as well. I mean, could be. 
And that being said, I still would love to see a day when you can actually maybe custom design and custom color your own Switch handheld, or at least your Switch dock, or make, you know, if there was some sort of Nintendo design lab where you can go and customize your own unique panels for the dock or something, I would love to see that. I know Microsoft has that for people to go and design uh, unique uh, Xbox One and Xbox Series X controllers, you know, uh, with different colors on basically every aspect of the device. You pay a bit more, you're paying a premium to get something custom and unique to you, but I would love for something like that. And I could see Nintendo and people going for it too. Yeah. Just call me crazy. I mean, that front face of the dock, that's a good amount of surface area. You could actually really zazz it up, and if people wanted to zazz it up, they could pay accordingly. But nevertheless, uh, that is still just one of the far-off hopes the that I have for Nintendo in the future life cycle of the Switch, which shows no signs of slowing down as a sales juggernaut either. Let's be clear. Yeah. Nintendo does did not need and does not need to release an upgraded model. Sales of the Switch have not slipped. They continue strong. They are continuing quite steadily, in no small part, because people are having hard times getting the Xbox uh, Series X or the PlayStation 5, so perhaps they are turning their dollars to the Switch. But there's also, you know, it's still a good back catalog of games already through the four-ish years uh, that the Switch has been on sale. So uh, this is a a curious eyebrow-raising approach that Nintendo has taken and feels uh, less like a substantive hardware revision and perhaps more like a uh, just kind of frivolous hardware revision they would have done for one of their handheld systems before, like the 3DS. Yeah, or even, or even like, the the revisions that they did to the original NES and uh Super Nintendo like, yeah. they weren't they didn't change any sort of guts to the systems they just kind of put them in smaller weirder form factors that is true yeah that uh, revised late era NES console was still a weird looking thing yeah uh but i recall too uh with the 3DS uh Nint- when Nintendo had its first hardware revision for that system they literally just in- increased the size, the size of the screen and called it the 3DS XL. It yeah. literally was just a bigger screen, and that's it. And here we are, basically the same thing. So the only substantive change I think they did, or quality of life improvement they did with this, was the kickstand. Instead of it just being the you know flimsy postage stamp-sized kickstand, now it's actually sus- substantive and runs across the back of the unit. Cool. But... Couldn't you just do that to the baseline switch? Yeah. Or release like some sort of like accessory for the switch. Like, I don't know. Anyway, uh, that's, oh, and also like my, I'm curious. It's, you'd think that there would be an easy way to pull statistics from their end on how often and in what f- form people are playing. Like, do people, like, what percent of people primarily play at docked versus not? Like, I would be surprised if they weren't collecting at least that level of information. Like, if you're connected to the internet, which generally you have to be for most of these devices, you kind of expect basic analytics to be going back to Nintendo about certain things. Like, it's like, okay, this game is being played in docked mode more often than not. So, like, I don't know, like, wouldn't they have for sure, like, unless people are playing maybe not docked more often than not, and I'm wrong, but 
I'd be curious about those statistics even. And it's just like, yeah, did they make this decision based on that? Like, what are, what were the decisions based on? It's uh, It seems like there would have been a myriad of factors that, of course, we will not uh, be privy to or ever hear because Nintendo is uh, traditionally a pretty uh, close to the vest company. Yeah. But uh, those are all discussions and uh, decisions for another day. Perhaps we'll hear about them in the future. Wouldn't hold my breath, but I also wouldn't hold my breath for a lot of things in this world. I like breathing. <laughs> I like living. It's what I do best. Absolutely. But... Uh, at this moment, I should recognize that we should probably get into the blast from the past, as we've been uh, talking for quite a bit here, and we don't really want to uh, take up that much more time of you, our beautiful, lovely, uh, dedicated listeners. So we will get to our blast from the past. We have three very different items uh, to talk about uh, this week. Uh, two are movies. One of them is actually game-related. Uh, one of the items is an album all of them celebrating milestone anniversaries of some age. So uh, where would you like to start this week? Uh, maybe we can start with the album. Let's just go top to bottom as written. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> as written by Mike the Legend in the show notes, uh, I should yeah, say. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, we've got to have some level of organization here, you know. <laughs> Don't know how a podcast would get by without any sort of notes or preparation or whatnot. Just can't fly, can't fly by the seat of your pants the entire time. That's anarchy and chaos, please. Oh, you yeah. give me anxiety thinking about it. But the album, as you uh, decided we should start with, came out on July 7th, 1986. It was a debut album for this singer who had a uh, pretty good uh, run as a lead singer for a, a very popular band at the time, but decided to break off and go solo. This was their first solo album, the album title being Edom and Smile, the singer being Diamond David Lee Roth. Yeah. So, eat him and smile. It's a, <laughs> I don't know where to start with this album. It's a <laughs> it's wild a good album. Al- it's a wild album. It's a good album. I mean, he put like, I got to give David Lee Roth credit because the band Van Halen was literally like, you know, lightning in a bottle. The, the four of them, like they're, what they were was, you know, it was like, for all intents and purposes, a vehicle to show how ridiculous of a guitar player Eddie Van Halen was, but that shouldn't also discount how great of a drummer Alex Van Halen was, or, you know, how solid of a bassist and background vocalist Michael Anthony was, and also how charismatic of a vocalist frontman, arguably, you know, the person who is what you think of when you think of, like, you know, the archetype rock vocalist, I mean, there's Freddie Mercury and you know, who kind of like kicked a lot of like the things off in many ways in the modern world. But then David Lee Roth is like the person who you're like, oh yeah, he's the guy that has all the swagger and the moves. You know, cause Freddie Mercury had the control of the crowd, but then David Lee Roth is the person that basically turned the front man into a character. <laughs> it was just like, that's not a real person. That's, you know, the character on stage. It's true. And, uh, he was very animated. He had a, a lot of, uh, uh, presence, but he'd command your attention and presence by his moves, what he could do on stage. Uh, yeah. But then he had a voice and power to his voice to back it up. Yeah. And then what I was going to say was, you know, while Van Halen was like lightning in a bottle, 
you'd think it would be impossible to basically recreate that formula with any other group of musicians, but he almost managed to do it with the band on Eat 'em and Smile, you know, because if there was someone else who you might think of in terms of like being an equal to Eddie Van Halen in terms of, you know, guitar wizardry in the 1980s, there's maybe four other people and he got one of them in Steve Vai. Like Steve Vai in many ways, I mean, he's not as influential as Eddie Van Halen in terms of, you know, what Van Halen just generally did for the electric guitar. But if you ask any guitar player, like who are you, who are some of like, you know, your favorite eighties, you know, guitar God shredder guys, Steve Vai will probably be, if not the first, one of the first people that most people will mention of like, oh yeah, like eighties, like, you know, you'll think of like Joe Satriani or Steve Vai or maybe Ingve Malmsteen or something like that. Steve Vai is one of those guys and he had him on this album and he's not Eddie Van Halen, but you know, he, he does the job <laughs> very well. And, you know, along with Steve Vai, there's a couple of other names on this album who are, you know, in terms of like music nerd circles, kind of legendary in terms of, you know, just basically being like the legendary session guys that, you know, would show up in various places like Billy Sheehan, the Steve Vai of the bass, basically, who later went on to be, you know, a core component of Mr. Big, who's another massive 80s successful band with, you know, some hits of their own and everything. And then Greg Bissonette, like a fantastic drummer, like a guy who's, you know, whose credits are like bananas. He's worked with literally everyone in the world. You know, um, you just look at Greg Bissonette's, you know, discography and it's like, like, it's like 200 items long. Like he's, he's done a lot of stuff. Uh, and yeah, just the song Yankee Rose, I think to some people was what they wanted the next Van Halen single to be because I mean, at that point, after David Lee Roth left, Van Halen, you know, became what, you know, some people derisively called Van Hagar, right? You know, with any, with, uh, you know, Sammy Hagar taking over duties and, you know, they became, they, they changed their sound quite a bit. Like Van Halen with Sammy Hagar does not sound like Van Halen with David Lee Roth. Like, they're just not really the same band. Whereas, you could see Eat 'em and Smile being a Van Halen album. You could. The uh, the sound is there, and it seems like uh, uh, David Lee Roth uh, wanted to continue that, and maybe that was part of the the friction at the time with uh, the other members of Van Halen too. Just the the difference uh, in opinion of what the sound should be. The next albums, uh, you know, should be also due to the clashing of personalities uh, in Van Halen. Uh, I think playing a part into David Lee Roth going off on his own. Uh, yeah. But if you're not able to have, you know, Van Halen behind you, it's, it sure seems like David Lee Roth got, got some really good ringers to come in. Almost like Mr. Burns forming his uh, softball team for the nuclear power plant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, like, if you think of, like I said, like, who else would you get to replace Eddie Van Halen? Then someone like you, you would have to get Steve Vai, basically. Or Sammy, like, not Sammy Hagar, or like, uh, uh, Joe Satriani, basically, maybe Paul Gilbert, whatever. But like, these are all, like, again, like, there's four or five guys you might think of, and he got maybe the top one. So, yeah. So, full credit to, to him and, and the lineup, and 
uh, I didn't even remember that Steve Vai was on this album. Like, it just didn't even dawn on me again that, oh yeah, Steve Vai was on this. Oh god, Steve Vai was on this album. Holy hell. Yeah. And, you know, let's also, like, not forget that, you know, Shy Boy is basically Hot for Teacher 2. <laughs> and in many ways, it's even more musically impressive than anything that Van Halen did because both Billy Sheehan and Steve Vai are like bananas musicians. Like they're at the Eddie Van Halen level, even if, you know, they might've been inspired by Eddie Van Halen to become that level. But yeah, anyways, all that aside, it's a great album. It's, it's, there, there's nothing groundbreaking about the album. Like they're not, it's, it doesn't do anything that any Van Halen album up to that point didn't do. But it's still a great, solid album. Oh, absolutely. If you enjoy the sound of, uh, you know, the David Lee Roth Van Halen years, you're still going to enjoy this sound. Yeah, because it's very, you know, it's it's that, but with all of, like, the hard-driving version of, like, it's it's basically the greatest hits version of that, like, condensed into its own thing. And it there's nothing wrong with it. It's like, you know, the syrup version of that, if you want to put it in that way that you can kind of like, you know, basically pour out and make, you know, you know, like if, you know, rather than buying, you know, a two liter of Coke every time you might buy a, uh, a soda stream and buy, you know, a thing of syrup so you can have the two liter, whatever you want. Exactly. Or, uh, you know, a way of uh, framing it that I was just thinking of now too, is you don't always have to reinvent the wheel. Sometimes just to enhance the wheel that's already there. Yeah. Yeah. And the album art we have to mention just uh, for a moment here too. The album art on this album is bananas. Yeah. Might be a bit problematic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know what he's going for. Um I believe it was in the music video for Yankee Rose where he's dressed like that and he walks up to a convenience store clerk saying, what was it? Something like he wanted a, he said something stupid like, I, I want a bag of chips and blah, 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 to go. And it's just like, you're at a convenience store. What? <laughs> also, why are you dressed like this? <laughs> How much cocaine are you on? <laughs> like, I think that's a good way to look at this album cover. The album could be called Cocaine. <laughs> and it would make as much sense. <laughs> Um, now, to our listeners out there who uh, perhaps do not have uh, the image of uh, the album art for Eat Him and Smile pulled up in front of them, uh, it is David Lee Roth, uh, uh, very front and center, you know, face forward uh, album art, uh, dressed and made up as uh, though he's a witch doctor. Yeah. Again, maybe problematic. Again, I'm a white person and I can't really... I'm not going to be the person to say what whether something's offensive to another group culturally or not, but I have a suspicion that it's not okay if someone were to do this now. <laughs> now, it's not uh, blackface as you would think of blackface. Half his face is purple, half his face is red. He's got, you know, bright yellow under the eyes, but he's got, uh, you know, black and white, almost piano uh, stripes uh, coming down the center of his face from his nose, then off to the left side of his cheek. Yeah. Eddie's got a uh, his hair all covered in feathers. Yeah, exactly. So it's um, it's kind of in- incongruous with the title, which you know I'm not even going to bother getting into that title because you know uh, 
It's open to interpretation. Yeah, yeah, let's say let's say it's open to interpretation. <laughs> yes. Also, there's a very strange thing I, I keep forgetting about every time I think about this album. Very weirdly enough, they released a version of the album called Sonrisa Salvage, which I mean, of course, I'm I'm not saying it right. My pronunciation is probably trash, but it's a it's a Spanish language version of the album. Um, that according to the Van Halen Encyclopedia, the idea to re-record the album in Spanish was the idea of uh, Billy Sheehan, who is the bass player, as I said, who had read an article in a magazine which reported that over half the Mexican population was between the ages of 18 to 27, which was a um, their main uh, demographic for this type of music, which, of course, citation needed on Wikipedia, but still. Uh, Roth did recut all the vocals in Spanish with the help of a Spanish tutor, and they did release, you know, uh, a version of this album in Spanish, but it apparently tanked, um, you know, where a lot of people apparently didn't really, it was not very well received because it, I guess, you know, they're, they're not actually a Spanish language band. And I guess there must have been issues with his pronunciation and things like that. But, uh, yeah, um, Apparently, the, the CD version of this album did not make a reappearance until 2007. I'm not sure if it's available anywhere. Just look for it on YouTube. It's 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 a strange thing to do to release an entirely different language version of an album that's been already released in one language. Like, ballsy. <laughs> I think a lot of what you can say about David Lee Roth in his heyday is... What a ballsy performer in so many different ways. Good or bad, you gotta give him credit for trying a bunch of weird stuff. Oh, absolutely. It, uh, was one of his, uh, his charms and, uh, also quirks. Yeah, like quirks. That level charms. of confidence slash gumption slash, uh, chutzpah slash moxie slash, um, overconfidence. Call it what you will slash, uh, cocaine. Call it what you will. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he didn't even smile. An enjoyable album. Well worth it if you are looking to get your Van Halen fix. Uh, but let's move from there to uh, just a few years back in the 80s. We'll go back to July 10th of 1981 to talk about a movie. It is not the movie that's video game related, although this is a movie that still has a very good, very strong uh, cult following. It's a John Carpenter film that was released on July 10th, 1981. It's a film that both you and I have seen many times. And uh, many of you out there have seen many times as well. It was a great starring vehicle for Kurt Russell. This is Escape from New York. Yeah, Escape from New York. Um, If you have ever played a Metal Gear Solid game, and if you've never seen Escape from New York, if you're a fan of Metal Gear Solid and haven't seen Escape from New York, you should go and watch Escape from New York. You'll kind of laugh at how... Much of this movie was lifted for those games? No, not all of it. Like, there is some ridiculous, some more ridiculous aspects to this game that, or this movie, I should say, that didn't make it into the game in, you know, the interest of the game maybe being a little bit more serious and whatnot. But, uh, this movie, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, Russell plays a character called Snake Pliskin and, you know, he's, uh, the person, like, it's essentially Metal Gear Solid in many ways where he's basically New York is basically now like an independent city state slash prison for the rest of America. <laughs> like Manhattan Island is just like the, the, the gangs run free in New York city now on Manhattan Island. 
as a maximum security prison, but yeah, um, Snake Plissken has to go in and rescue the president of the United States who was making some sort of appearance in Manhattan for some reason. I think his plane got shot down. Yeah, so, oh yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, his plane got shot down above Manhattan and yeah, he had to go in, um, and rescue the president. Um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was sent in by Lee Van Cleef, who's another ridiculous classic actor who you might recall was in, uh, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. Well, actually, more than one of the dollars trilogy, wasn't he? He was in a, uh, he was also in it for a few dollars more. That's right. Yes. Yeah. He was, yeah, yeah. Fistful of Dollars was the first, but he wasn't in that. He was in the second and third. Yeah. Second and third. Um, Ernest Borgnine also was in this movie as well as, you know, as well as Isaac Hayes, the, the late great Isaac Hayes played the Duke of New York. <laughs> I think has the most fantastic, you know, appearance of any person in any movie. It's just like, they did a really good, like John Carpenter did a fantastic job of setting up a world in this movie. Like, I don't really remember specific plot elements or anything like that, but I do remember how good of a job he did of just basically, you really feel like, like he has a complete world he set up of like this crazy dystopian version of like what New York could potentially turn into if it was actually left to be a maximum security prison that's walled off from the rest of America, where like literally every dangerous criminal is just like, yeah, toss him behind the walls of New York and let him run free. And if anyone tries to escape, shoot him. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it also kind of very much feels like, I guess how New York probably was back then too, in the eighties, just like anytime we've seen a sort of piece of media that was shot in New York in the eighties, New York felt or seventies and eighties, New York just kind of felt dirty, grimy. There's always that like crime element, uh, that was present, but maybe not spoken about, about in the daylight, but people just kind of hurried, you know, hurried along to where they went. Like New York back in the seventies and eighties from what we've seen, uh, you know, having never lived there, we don't know, but always came across to me as like just, you know, not uh, the most pleasant place and certainly not the uh, tourist attraction it is these days. Uh, yeah. And I think that's uh, also a, a good, you know, element that uh, John Carpenter conveyed in Escape from New York. He just kind of extrapolated how New York was and just worked it out to its logical conclusion. Yeah. Hey, New York City, a maximum security prison. Okay. And uh, you mentioned the connection kind of between Escape from New York and Kurt Russell's portrayal of Snake Plissken uh, and how many elements of that were lifted for Hideo Kojima eventually doing the Solid Snake uh or Metal Gear Solid games with Solid Snake, I also have found, or found too, and think that uh, the portrayal that Kurt Russell did of of Snake Plissken here maybe served as a basis for, like, Hugh Jackman portraying Wolverine, or just how Wolverine has been uh, acted in the cartoons and even in live-action performances by Hugh Jackman and whoever else eventually. Like, Snake Plissken is always talking really quietly, but through gritted teeth, yeah. And that's basically how Wolverine I've always seen portrayed as. Yeah, that very like <laughs> also the scenes between Snake Plissken and um uh Lee Van Cleef's character Hauk. They're <laughs> super like there's they, they couldn't be more macho scenes, right? Like 
it's like the classic thing of like these two guys with gritty voices really trying to out grit each other and no you no you no you you're the worst no I'll kill you I'll kill you ah, it's just like holy crap what are you guys doing like <laughs> if it's gonna get more any more intense and like macho in here like I don't know what's gonna happen like <laughs> like like the air is so thick you could cut it with like you know. Like a bread knife, like a good god. Yeah, the testosterone in those rooms for those scenes would choke a lesser man. Mm-hmm. And it's really, in- it's an enjoyable 80s, like, semi-futuristic romp. It's set in 1997, so it's near-term future, even for when it was released in 1981. We've seen 1997 come and go, and clearly New York did not fall into the state of uh, chaos and disarray. That John Carpenter portrayed, but, uh, I mean, yeah. Good. Nor did, did, nor, did, nor did Isaac Hayes become the Duke of New York, so. <laughs> <laughs> but man, if he did, his, uh, life would have, uh, perhaps taken a much, uh, different and better path. Yeah. But perhaps. Well worth your time is Escape from New York. Uh, it eventually spawned a sequel that I think came out in like 1997 called Escape from LA, uh, which I don't think we've ever seen. No, I've never seen it. I've I've been told by people that, you know, I probably would like it. I, I heard it's not, you know, I've seen mixed things on reviews, but I'd be willing to give it a shot. I do like a good John Carpenter movie and, you know, you know, I, I, I did like Escape from New York a lot. So, and I, I do like Kurt Russell a lot. So true. I, I, I think one of the, uh, uh, holdbacks for me for watching Escape from L.A. is that it just it's always striking me as being a, a really unnecessary movie. Yeah. But yeah, I, yeah. But to be fair, you know, any ludicrous um, 80s, 90s action movie is an unnecessary movie. Commando's an unnecessary movie, and I love it. So I don't know. Touche. Well, we'll see um, what the future holds. Yeah. Maybe eventually, but uh, one more item to talk about. This is the item. It's a movie that's actually video game related in name, basically alone. Uh, it is a movie that was released on July 11th, 2001, so it's turning 20 years old. It uh, was an attempt by the studio behind this uh, franchise to just kind of spread out, spread its wings, and uh, spread into other mediums to attempt storytelling that... Uh, didn't seem to work or be as well received perhaps as they were hoping. Uh, this movie is Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. So this movie, I saw it in the theater and I wanted to like it so much because there were so many really interesting things working for this movie to, you know, to make it on paper a very interesting movie. Really interesting, good cast, you know, Alec Baldwin, James Woods, Donald Sutherland, Ving Rhames, Steve Buscemi, like some real names associated to this movie. And the computer animation at the time, and even still arguably, holds up. It looks really good still. It did look top-notch for being 2001 CG animation. Yeah, and if you look back at it, yeah, like it it kind of looks like what, good anim... Like it looks decent in terms of like what you would expect from a video game now, which... Normally, computer animation, especially from this era, you can't say. Computer animation from this era is always garbage. So it was like really, it looked really good. It still looks okay. So those things working for it, I remember watching it in the movie theater. 
like, it wasn't based on any Final Fantasy game. And arguably, the name Final Fantasy was just kind of tacked onto it, arguably just to kind of, I think, maybe get some video game people interested in the movie because maybe they thought that the movie wouldn't have done as well on its own if it was literally just called The Spirits Within. Um, Because, yeah, there's literally nothing that needs – like, it. the name Final Fantasy basically means nothing <laughs> – in this case, um, there's no need to associate it with Final Fantasy. It's a standalone movie. It's not related to any of the games. Nothing like that. Um, and unfortunately, I basically don't remember anything about this movie. It was kind of very boring and not really interesting. Uh, my rec- my, I, I have, I did not see this movie when it came out and, uh, nor have I seen it since, but my rec- recollection, uh, of it being presented and marketed at the time, uh, was that it was an achievement, uh, in, in CG animation and that seemed to be the main draw and was very much coasting on the coattails of the Final Fantasy name. Oh, and, yeah. and you could argue one of the other connections is uh, that there's a character in Spirits Within named Sid. Yeah, okay. Which is a recurring right. name in so many of the Final Fantasy games. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But but beyond that, not based on any Final Fantasy game, not any sort of story, not being a connective tissue or branching off one or the other or a literal interpretation. No, they wanted to tell a story that... Maybe, even though it was seemingly set in North America, in the United States, a North American audience isn't going to appreciate. Uh, Even just looking off the Wikipedia page, uh, the storyline is very much uh, set around the idea of uh, spirits and phantoms uh, and almost ethereal beings having an impact on our physical world. Yeah, so it, it did feel kind of like they were retreading the ground that they set in Final Fantasy VII a little bit, you know, with the life stream and all that. But, like, my thought was, I'm like, well, we already saw this story already. It, this was already sort of done in Final Fantasy VII, wasn't it? And uh, maybe, I I mean, either way, audiences did not uh, receive it as well as perhaps uh, Square Enix or Squaresoft at the time, I should say, was uh, hoping it would. It had a budget of $137 million, which is a lot. Yeah. Uh, but then again, they were having the most cutting-edge CG animation technology at the time. Only grossed about $85 million, so, uh, you know, a bit more than... Uh, recouping a bit more than half of what it cost to make, but... uh yeah, this is uh, perhaps the reason why we haven't really seen a big theatrical Final Fantasy movie since. Yeah, I mean, we've seen other Final Fantasy movies, but they were always universally based on other Final Fantasy games from this point onward. Like, we saw, you know, uh, Advent Children based on Final Fantasy VII. We saw several tie-ins surrounding Final Fantasy XV, but yeah, there there was always a tie-in after this point on. So I don't know if it was a lesson learned or what, but it, like the fact that this wasn't really – it was a standalone movie that wasn't related to any game that you know didn't need to have the name Final Fantasy associated with it. I, I always kind of wondered, would it have done better 
if it didn't have the name Final Fantasy associated with it. Like, I wonder if people actually looked at that and thought, oh, I don't want to watch something based on a video game. I don't know anything about the video game. And that's true. This was still the early 2000s when uh, video games being translated to the big screen still was a fairly foreign concept. We'd only seen it a couple of times uh, with, you know, very mixed success, if any success, in the form well, of... Well, I, I would say with no success, arguably. Uh, that is fair, too, with uh, interpretations such as uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie, there was the Double Dragon movie, uh, and... I, Mortal Kombat? Mortal, well, Mortal Kombat was fairly successful. Yeah, but reasonably well, successful. Yeah, like financially, yes, <laughs> not not critically. <laughs> and of course, the Street Fighter movie, which was an experience and still is an experience. <laughs> yeah, which I like, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so you can almost understand uh, SquareSoft's. Uh, thinking at the time that, hey, we're into animation, animated movies, you know, with the Pixar films, uh, you know, are becoming more and more popular. There's a market for those. We're into storytelling. We got a lot of storytellers. We tell a lot of stories in our games. Let's merge these couple of different departments and see if we can't crank out a movie. And they did. And it's the only movie they've cranked out to theater. Now, things like, as you mentioned, Advent Children and, uh, their movies afterward have pretty much all been you know, direct to home release, some form of DVD release or, you know, straight to streaming release uh, or whatnot. So major theatrical movie release has yet to see another Final Fantasy uh, adaptation. Yeah. Will it ever see another one? I don't know. Uh, time will certainly tell, but uh, uh, if you are out there and you saw Final Fantasy Spirits Within back when it was released to theaters 20 years ago. Tell us your thoughts of what you recall. Would you want there to be another Final Fantasy movie? Or let us know your thoughts on anything else we mentioned or spoke about this week. Uh, would you pay $1.56 million for a still-sealed copy of Super Mario 64? Uh, would you allow your retinas to be scanned and uh, interpreted into code ones and zeros in order to get some sweet, sweet universal basic income crypto? Let us know your thoughts on all that and anything else by emailing us info at thearcadeshow.com or hitting up or hitting us up, I should say, on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. The Arcade Show on both those platforms. And if you haven't done so already, do yourself a favor. Sign yourself up. Sign someone else up. Sign a loved one up <laughs> and show them you care by signing them up and subscribing to our program on both iTunes, on both Google Podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. And I'd say we are, we're not really out of time, but uh, we're all out of spit. We're all out of water. So we need to go rehydrate. You need a break from listening to us. So how about this? Until next time, thanks for listening. And good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs>